Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Notice, if you will, the table is set for communion this morning. Um, So let me just say a few things about that. Um, We normally do this once a month. um, And yeah, there's a couple times a year we do that on Sunday morning to catch folks that uh, are unable to come on a regular basis on Sunday night. So you do not have to be a member of Timberlake Baptist Church to participate in in communion, uh, but you do need to be a member of the family of God. Um, This is a a symbol or an expression of what God has already done in you, what Christ has already accomplished on your behalf. Uh, There's no magic in the the elements. Um, it's It's a memorial celebration that we get to do as a church family, and the Bible tells us to prepare hearts for that, and I can't think of any better way uh, to prepare hearts than to look in uh, the mirror of God's Word uh, and rejoice in, uh, in what Christ has, has done for us. And uh, we're looking at verses two, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 this morning, and last week we embarked on this new section where the Apostle Paul turns his focus from the immoral man, the pagan man of chapter 1, to the moral or religious man of chapter 2. And he's going to advance his argument this morning by describing the basis of God's righteous judgment. He's going to say no one will escape judgment because God's judgment is always righteous. And he'll describe for us that righteous judgment. I'm sure at some point in your life you've probably seen a picture or a statue of the person called Lady Justice. Um, Those scales that are on the screen and the PowerPoint uh, is something that she holds. Uh, She's a woman that stands over top of most of the courthouses in our land. Um, She has a set of scales in one hand and a sword in the other, and over her eyes a blindfold. Her origin is actually Greek mythology, and she was introduced into the pantheon of Roman gods by Augustus, and yet she still stands today, a couple thousand years later, as a portrait of justice all over the, all over the world. Uh, Switzerland, Brazil, Italy, Germany, Canada, the UK, Czech Republic, Australia... Um, Belgium, just to name a few, all have her as a representative of judgment. Even Iran has a representative of her uh, at the courthouse in Tehran. Um, And she's always presented the same way because all of her accessories represent something about justice. Uh, She's a woman because justice should not lack a tender heart whenever it's administered. It shouldn't be cold uh, her, she has scales, which represents that she weighs out the evidence and the facts in her deliberation. In the opposite hand, she has a sword because that's used to carry out judgment on the guilty, and then she's blindfolded to show she is supposed to administer justice with impartiality. And she has this international appeal, this longevity, because. No matter your origin or whatever period of time you live in, everyone longs for equal justice under, under the law. That phrase is prominently engraved above the entrance to the U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. 
But what we want and what we get uh, are two different things, aren't they, at times? I mean, we don't always see, we don't always see those things uh, playing out in, in the human system. It's not always merciful. It sometimes overlooks the circumstances that bring people before the bar and or it goes overboard and excuses people because of their circumstances that clearly break the law. Uh, the facts are not always weighed out carefully or fairly. Sometimes that's not even intentional. I mean, we're human beings. There are things that we, we can't know. We can't know the motives of the heart. Not, there's not always a, 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 an eyewitness that's, that, that's there. The sword is not always used when it should be. I mean, is there anything more frustrating than watching someone who deserves to be punished for a heinous crime go free or somebody that's clearly guilty get off on a technicality? I mean, that's just, that's just maddening. That, that takes us back to Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? And justice is surely not always impartial. It's carried out by, by imperfect people that, that can fail. And, and sometimes justice is, is not missed because of imperfection. Sometimes you, you get a different outcome based upon who you are or who you know or what you're willing to pay. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that while human justice can let us down, we should not think that God works the, the same way. His judgment is righteous. God perfectly is merciful. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is pristinely accurate in the facts, including motives which no human can judge or see. He's powerful in punishment. The Bible tells us we should not fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And he is patently impartial. Or to say it simply, God, God's judgment is righteous. And last week, uh, Paul warned us about the mask of morality that can blind us to our own condition. And, and this week, he reveals to us the character of God's judgment that all people will, will face. In fact, this entire section runs for 16 verses. And Paul uncovers three truths about God's righteous judgment. The first one, God's inclusive judgment, is according to truth. That's what we saw last week. The one we'll look at today is God's impartial judgment is according to a person's deeds. That's the basis of his judgment. And then we'll cover verses 12 through 16 later. God's imminent judgment is not avoided by possessing the law, but by, by doing it. And all these truths reveal the moral man needs the gospel. And Paul is eager to preach that gospel to them because it reveals God's saving message of righteousness and all people need it. I mean, all people of all walks of life are guilty of rejecting God. They just do that in different ways. The, the Gentiles suppress the truth, the, the, the Jews pervert the truth, but they're also guilty. And then universally, all people deny the truth and they're under sin. And so this second type of person is now placed under the spotlight of God's holiness. And this is a person who keeps the golden rule on the outside, but inside their motto is more like rules are for thee, but not for me. I mean, let me kind of bring this uh, home to you, make it, make it a little personal. The way that you feel about a politician demanding that you wear a mask and then they flaunt those same rules themselves is the way that God feels whenever you judge others but then practice the same sins. 
it kind of puts a little teeth to it, doesn't it? At least it does for me. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul corrects a, a moral person's faulty view of themselves and their sin. And then verses 6 through 11, he corrects their flawed view of God's judgment. They think that God will be partial to them in judgment. And Paul showed us that we don't have to commit the immorality of Romans 1 to be guilty before God. You can believe in God. You can think the Bible is a helpful tool to live by. You can try to follow the ethics of Jesus and still be guilty before the Lord. So he showed us that moral and religious people often think wrongly about their sins and other sins and about God's grace. These, these are people who know right, they, they evidenced by the... They know right enough to judge. They have the right revelation, which is the law or the Bible. They, they have the right worship. They claim to worship the right God. They're not worshiping a stick or, or a rock. They, they have the right rituals, circumcision, and they even have the right position. They're God's covenant people. And because they know all that, they think that they will escape judgment, even though they practice sin. And a person, Paul says, wrongly thinks they'll receive a, a different judgment because they have a different kind of sin, the kind that God doesn't judge. And they'll receive a different grace, a grace that turns a blind eye because of some perceived relationship. And, and God says, no, you won't. Because his judgment is based on a person's deeds. And it's impartial. And that's what developed today. So verses 1 through 5, God opens their eyes to the mask of morality. Today he's going to continue to connect uh, or correct a moral man's bad thinking and he's going to focus on bad thinking about God's judgment. So Paul declares our sins stink just as bad as the pagan from chapter 1. and God's nose smells all sin and he's impartial in judgment. Or as I said, to say it the opposite way, moral people, people often believe that God will be partial to them in judgment, and Paul demolishes that. So, in this second section, the Bible gives us three clarifying details about God's righteous judgment. He starts with the basis of God's judgment, and that's a person's deeds. Then he gives the breakdown of God's judgment. There's two possible outcomes, verses 7 through 10. And then he wraps it up with the foundation or the bedrock of God's justice. What's behind it? What backs it up? Why does it come this way? It's his character. And he starts with the first one in verse 6. The basis of God's judgment is in verse 6. He says it's administered by God and it's according to deeds. Look, if you would, at verse 6. Verse 6, God, or who, will render to each person according to his deeds. And Paul now elaborates on the righteous judgment of God that he introduced back in verse 5. Look at verse 5 because these two go together. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's the theme. And he says here that God's righteous judgment is coming, it's, it's growing with each sin, it's being stored up, it's going to arrive at the day of wrath, that's at the end whenever God will judge. And now in verse 6 he gives the basis of that judgment. The basis of that righteous judgment that's coming 
is rendered to each person according to their deeds. It's coming from God and it's coming based on deeds. The word will render or will give uh, means to pay back. It means to, to give what is owed. It, in your Bible, it's probably in italics or it's, it's uh, uh, capitalized because it's a quote. It's quoted a number of places in Scripture, but, but one is Psalm 62, verse 12. And, and it says and that you, O Lord, belongs to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. God gives, God repays, God recompenses in accordance with what your actions deserve and not based on anything else. I mean, He doesn't look at your actions and your, your giving. He doesn't consider your deeds and your religious activity. He doesn't put your works and your upbringing on the scales. And that's what religious or moral or ethical people think. They think, yeah, I, I know that, that I've done wrong, but, but God's going to add something else to the judgment. Whenever He's evaluating. He's not going to just look at my sin. He's going to look at my sin plus something else. And Paul says that's, that's not correct. He judges every por- uh, person according to their deeds alone. And knowing our deeds, that's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Now, Paul will, will, will say it this way in chapter 3, a verse that you probably memorized whenever you studied the Romans road. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a different word, but it's a similar concept. Uh, wages are, are what's owed, and a gift is unearned. It's, it's undeserved, and that's how salvation is granted. But, but God's the one that's bringing both. He's bringing the... the is going to repay the wages that are owed, and, and he's also the one that brings the gift of eternal life. There are many people who have that wrong in the world. There are many people who had that wrong in Paul's day, which is why he's writing about it. There are people that think God is too kind or too loving to judge. I mean, the two common statements that you hear from people regularly are, why do bad things happen to good people and... I mean, how can a holy or I mean, how can a loving God send people to hell? I know he's holy, but but he's also a God of love, right? I mean, and a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And and Paul demolishes the first statement in verses one one through five. He says there there's no such thing as good people, only bad people that compare themselves to other bad people, and therefore determine that they're not as bad. And he deals with the second one here. I mean, Paul says a loving God um, doesn't just send people to hell like like you send a letter um, where the letter has nothing to do with it. I mean, the idea of sending in that concept is is like God's unprovoked action. Like he's just kind of bumping along in heaven and he sees a person and he sends them to hell. It's like he puts a letter in the mail. Paul says that's not accurate. God's judgment... Is his holy reaction. You saw that in chapter 1. He gave them over. Man's rejection initiates that. God righteously judges a person now according to their deeds. He renders to them what they deserve. And based on those deeds, that's not what people think. And the Bible says God is perfect in all of His ways, and that includes His holy justice. And since God is holy, He must. 
judge evil and wrong. As we said before, what, what would you think of a, of a human judge that, that refused to judge a drunk driver who killed somebody and just let them off? Do you think they would be just? I mean, no, you would say, do your sworn duty. I mean, you took an oath to uphold the law, and, and God's responsibility is even higher than that. He wrote the law. It comes from His character that cannot be changed. God's character prohibits Him from overlooking it. That's not contrary to His perfect love. It's congruent with it. In fact, the Bible says that God will sit enthroned over eternal judgment as a testimony of His holy judgment. Look at Revelation chapter 14. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. That verse says that hell happens in God's presence. I mean, with complete lack of His blessing and, and without any relationship with Him, but He sits enthroned over judgment. And the devil will also face the, the, the same judgment. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We don't get this idea that Satan is running some kind of alternative empire in hell, like some substitute kingdom for sinners who, who don't want God. I mean, he's going to be tormented just like everyone else. Revelation 20 declares that, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that judgment, his judgment, is also according to deeds, just like everyone else. But moral people say, well, of course, that's where Satan's going, because his deeds are evil. But God's not going to look at my deeds that way. God's going to be partial to me. So what does this phrase, according to deeds, mean? I mean, if God's going to judge, His scales are going to be based on deeds. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it means a whole person's life. It's what their life produces. Another verse you probably know well echoes it. I'll show it to you in this passage. Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment passage that you probably know. I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book, of course, uh, which was the, the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, the, the original books, according to their deeds. I mean, the books that are there represent an accurate record of, of your life's yield, what it, what it produced. And you hear that and you say, well, I mean, well, who can stand then? I mean, if I'm going to be judged by my deeds, I mean, what, what, what hope do I have? And, and what about, I mean, this is the book of Romans, right? I mean, salvation by, by faith, not by works. And nothing Paul says here denies salvation by faith alone because Paul's not addressing salvation here. He's addressing the basis of, of God's judgment. He's already said a person is saved by faith alone, just like in the Old Testament. He quotes Amos, and it was all the way back in verses 16 through 18, the gospel that he's eager to preach. That's also what Paul will press home in unmistakable detail in 
in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. By, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified, that's before God, by faith apart from the works of the law. So here he's talking about justification before God. And in this verse he's talking about judgment. What Paul's establishing here is is not how we're made right with God, but how God judges. And the Bible clearly says you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but it also says that if that faith is genuine, it will come out in the way that a person lives. The way you live will either validate your faith or it will invalidate it. And the consistency of, of your life will, will show that you're either overcoming sin and becoming more and more like Christ or, or you're still yielding your members to sin and, and doing all the other things that Scripture says. Some I mean, of the principles all over the Bible. It's in 1 John Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There's that practice word. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His Son cleanses us from all sin. That's what James says, isn't it? James chapter 2. James chapter two seventeen. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself, being alone, it's... It's dead faith, it's lifeless faith, it's not saving faith. That's James's argument. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Those verses are not denying the, the basis of your salvation is the work of Jesus alone, but your deeds, your works, are evidence that faith actually resides in you. And the irony of verse 5 is this extra time that God gives them due to His long-suffering. Gave them more time for those deeds, their, their lives to produce those deeds, and therefore wrath to accumulate. I mean, Robert Mount said, Knowing the truth but not doing it is not morally neutral. James 4.17, For him who knows to do good but does it not, it's sin. And even worse, whenever you resist the truth, it hardens your heart and it makes the truth more difficult to recognize the, the next time you hear it. He said, life is not a game of consequences. By our response to God's revelation, we are creating our own destiny. We're determining where the letter gets sent. But Paul goes on to expand what he means here. Next, he shows the two outcomes of, of God's judgment. So here's the second clarifying detail about God's righteous judgment is, is the breakdown of God's judgment. He gives a contrast of outcomes, there are only two, and then he gives a further explanation uh, of its occurrence. Actually gives an order that, that, that's important in verses 9 and 10. Look, look at verse 7. He says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But, there's the contrast, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Verse 7 and 8 go together and contrast two outcomes of two different kinds of people. 
the end result of two different um, lives full of deeds. It's an illustration of two possible outcomes of the righteous judgment that he just mentioned. I mean, he answers here how God renders to each according to his works. He, he says there are only two outcomes of righteous judgment. There's not some middle ground. He focuses on, on the people first. And then he turns to the judgments that they receive. It's, it's to help us understand what Paul means by God judging based on our actions. I mean, it's like giving more details. You say deeds. Well, okay, what, what deeds? I mean, if I'm going to be judged by deeds, what are those? Uh, he shows a life that God will reward and a life that God will punish. Now, don't forget the context here. Because Paul is speaking to moral people or people that think they're moral those who know about God, those who have the law, they base their assurance on those things alone while overlooking their deeds, overlooking their lifestyle. And that's what makes it hard for them. It's hard for them to people like that to recognize their true spiritual condition. I mean, haven't you struggled with that as well? Whenever, haven't you second-guessed at, at times when you see a professing Christian sin? I mean, you, you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, I mean, they go to church faithfully. I mean, I know they were baptized whenever they were a teenager. I mean, you're saying, I mean, are they a sinner or are they a saint? Uh, are they a Christian who has fallen into sin or, or, or a deceiver who thinks that they're all right with God, but they're not? I mean, are they David or Saul? Are they Jacob or Esau? Are they Judas or Peter? I mean, what does it look like when a person like that is saved but sins or a person who sins but isn't saved? Well, Paul shows us here what both of them look like. One life, he says, will persevere in doing good and seeking God. That's the perseverance of the saints. And the, and the other will be marked with selfish ambition and continued Disobedience to the truth. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. To those who by perseverance in, in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and, and eternal life. He starts with the person who will not be judged by God. Or he's judged and, and what he gets is eternal life. Notice the, the, the two repetitive concepts. Those who by their persistence... Or their perseverance. And, and then the other word, they seek. They're, they're persisting and they're seeking. It's the idea of a pursuit. It's, it's what's ongoing in their, in their life. So you, now you can see a person who's, who's stumbling, but, but if sin is the case, but, but then they're, they're persevering and, and they're continuing to seek. Uh, Paul defines what, what they persist in and, and what they seek in this verse as well. They seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. They, they persist in good works and they, they seek glory, honor, and immortality. It's persist, it's hupomane. They, they do that in doing good, not makrothumia. And they're seeking. It means to seek or to strive after. It's a persistent lifestyle of, of godliness. And to that group, God will render a recompense or give eternal life. But there's another kind. Look at verse 8. But 
those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath, and indignation is coming. These are people who are characterized as well by selfishness, disobedience. They obey unrighteousness. They don't disobey righteousness. They don't just disobey uh, truth. They obey something else. There's a pattern with this person as well. They're focused on the fulfillment of self as their goal. They disobey God's word, and then they do the opposite. They obey unrighteousness. And, I mean, if you boil it down, they live for themselves rather than God. They give themselves to disobedience, to unrighteousness rather than the truth. They refuse to subject themselves to, to the truth. They, they prefer to give themselves to unrighteousness. And this type of person, God renders wrath and indignation. And then he goes further to explain these two opposing occurrences of judgment. Look, if you would, at verse 9. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So where verse 7 and 8 focuses on describing the type of person, what's coming from their, their life, verses 9 and 10 details more about the outcome and, and then gives this order, the Jew first and then also the Greek. I mean, this righteous judgment is coming on everyone, but to the Jew first and also the Greek. I mean, notice he also reverses the order. He, he starts with the, with the person rewarded with wrath first now, rather than rewarded with eternal life. Verse 8, wrath and fury is coming in verse 9, and that is tribulation and distress. Doug Moose said tribulation describes the objective part of judgment, and distress focuses on the, the subjective suffering. You, you will have distress because of the tribulation that's, that, that's coming. And notice again the key phrase, the, the one who does evil. It's the practicing of, of evil. But the most important thing he adds here is, is for our context. He adds to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he repeats that twice. On the first line... Uh, it's the first time that Paul specifically identifies his audience here. I mean, Paul is aiming at Jews who are morally secure, but they lack Christ. And John Murray pointed, pointed out that you could clearly see that before he mentions the name Jew. I mean, there's the propensity of, of Jews to judge the Gentiles for their lack of morality. They're amening, Romans 1. He uses this covenant language, the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. That's from Deuteronomy. And Paul is arguing against special privileges, exempting somebody from judgment. And then he even talks about circumcision later. But here he mentions Jew for the first time. And you say, what does that have to do with God's righteous judgment? Well, everything in his argument here. I mean, the crux of what Paul is saying is contrary to popular belief, the sins of the Jew will not be treated any differently by, than, uh, by God than those of the Gentiles. God judges everyone according to their deeds. It's not the possession of the law that saves you, but, but if the law is written on your heart. It's not the ritual of circumcision or baptism that carries weight in the judgment. It's the circumcision or baptism of the heart 
that reveals whether a person is truly in covenant with God. And, and this applies to you as well, even if you're not a Jew, because what this says is God is looking not to your morality or your ethics or your externals, but your inner repentance and your heartfelt commitment in, in, in faith. And Paul will argue in just a few verses that whether the will of God is known by the law of Moses for a Jew or whether it's known through the voice of conscience like for the Gentile, knowledge alone doesn't save. It's doing the will of God that is required. Do you? Do you do the will of God? What's revealed in Scripture? You say, well, sometimes. I mean, I think I do. You're making me a little nervous now. Well, where would you go to find out whether you actually did? Let's say you go to verses 7 and 8. And see which pattern you see in your life. I mean, are you seeking after God? Are, are you persevering in doing good? Is there a willingness to quickly hear and, and obey God? Or do you see a, a judging of others while you practice the same sin? Are you focused on fulfillment of self, uh, a disobedience to God's word, and a, and, a, and a yielding of your members or an obeying of unrighteousness? Whatever marks your life, you, you can be rest assured God's judgment will be based on that. And it will be just. And it will be just because it's based on God's character, which is the, the final detail here. God's righteous judgment has a bedrock. It has a foundation. And Paul says it's God's impartiality in particular and His character in general. Look at verse 11. He kind of just ties this all together. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. And, and he brings us back to the truth that he started with in, in verse 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. And now in verse 11, he explains why that must happen and why that will happen. Because God's judgment is based on God's character. It's righteous judgment. And his specific character that will be displayed in judgment is impartiality. God is not partial to you. Ephesians 6, 9 echoes this truth. Masters, do the same things to them and, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no partiality with him. Whether master or slave, that's irrelevant to God. Colossians 3.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So what's partiality mean? Or impartiality. The word literally means to receive a face. If you're partial, you receive a face. I mean, one commentator says the New Testament writers took two words and kind of smushed them together. To create this word. It, it means to be a face receiver. Paul says there is no face receiving with God in judgment. Um, it means God does not receive or regard a person's appearance, their ethnicity, or 
what they have or what they can offer or anything else whenever he's judging. He does not base his approval or judgment on considerations that that are irrelevant to the choice that, that he's making. And in this case, whether you're going to be judged or whether you're not. I mean, he bases it on the facts. He bases it on the product of your life, the, the deeds. And, and all those other things are irrelevant. I mean, impartiality doesn't mean that everybody gets the same outcome. I mean, that'd be madness. And he just noted that, the, that there's a priority of the Jew, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Salvation is, is to the Jew and also the Greek. And now he says the same thing with judgment. And he says it's because God is impartial. There's no partiality with God. Well, how can God not have partiality if it's Jew first and then, and then the Greek? Well, if you think that, you don't understand impartiality. Let me illustrate it this way. I mean, if I was playing, uh, if I was uh, picking a, a pickup football uh, team and I was impartial, it means I would pick the best players to help the team win. If I was partial, it would mean that I would pick players based on other factors, like, like an all-Gentile team, or like which one's going to likely take me to lunch after the, the, the game's over, or a close friend, but it still couldn't play well. I mean, that's partiality. It's picking, choosing, or making a decision based on something that's irrelevant. Everyone can't play ball at the same level, and everyone can't get on the team. But impartiality means that you don't base your decision on irrelevant considerations. Or think of it this way, as one writer gave this illustration. I'm quoting. Impartiality does not demand that the the guilty defendant... I mean, you think of a judge. Impartiality doesn't demand the, the, the guilty defendant gets to go free because you have to treat everybody the same... When everyone else leaves the courtroom, the criminal who has been convicted and found guilty gets to go free because we can't be impartial here. We have to treat everybody the same. He gets to go free because everybody's going free. I mean, nobody thinks impartiality means that. Impartiality demands that the judge not base his verdict on considerations like race or wealth or intelligence or reputation in the community. I mean, if the judge favors his own race or if he favors wealthy people or intelligent people or famous people, he would be partial, not impartial. And he would be a lousy judge and unworthy to judge. He would be unrighteous in his judgment. So impartiality doesn't mean treating everyone the the same. It means basing your treatment of others on the right kind of considerations. Did the defendant actually kill the man? If he did, then he goes to jail. If, use my illustration, is the kid really a good ball player, then, then he should be on the team, end quote. Now go back to what Paul is saying about, about God. Verse 6, God will render to each person according to his deeds. For there is no partiality with God. And he's saying that to a moral person who thinks God will be partial or that their sins won't weigh as much as the sins of somebody else. And Paul says God will judge every person on the same set of scales. Those scales are the deeds 
that come out of their life. And he will not base it on some other matter that's irrelevant to a righteous judgment. Like you think that you're a pretty moral guy or you can find somebody else that's worse than you or you really love God over here but you're doing these other things over there or any other idea that you might have. And so that leaves us with this nagging question that I've already mentioned before because you're sitting there listening to this in the context, trying to stay in the context and not run ahead, and you're going, well, if God is absolutely impartial in justice and He's going to judge me by my deeds, then what hope do I have? Right? And the answer is, you have only one. You see, God has already placed His own Son on this same set of scales. And he judged him by his deeds. And when he did, Christ was proven righteous. That's what God declares in the baptism. He declares it again in the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'm satisfied. You and I have already been weighed in the balance and we've been found wanting. But Jesus Christ, whenever God weighed him, he found a righteous man, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Corinthians? The just for the unjust. The unjust is you. The just is Christ. And when he did, he was proven righteous. You don't just need your sins forgiven to get into heaven. You need righteousness to get into heaven. And you know that you're not righteous, especially whenever you hear a passage like this where God's going to weigh out your life. But Christ was righteous. But God didn't stop there. He poured out the same impartial justice for your sin, which rendered a verdict of guilty. He poured that out on the Lord. And He did that on the cross. And because of those two things, the righteousness of Christ that was proven by His life, and then the righteous judgment of God that you and I deserve placed upon Christ because of those two things married together in the cross and the worth and work of Jesus Christ that's freely offered to you and all people, anyone who will repent and believe and place their hope there, God says you and I go free. <laughs> and as Paul will say later, that then makes God both just doesn't just excuse sin, and it also makes him the justifier of those who come to him by faith in Jesus. Do we have any hope in the, the scales of God's justice? If it's just God by your deeds alone, no. But if you hear the gospel, the good news, and place your faith there, then yes, Christ is your hope in life and death, just like we song, uh, just like we, the song that we sang. And that's what we're going to celebrate um, now in the Lord's table. So I want to invite the, the deacons up. We'll end our service in, in this way. I'll just ask you to Bow your heads and prepare your hearts for this table. It's a call to holiness. Um, you men may go ahead and get the plates if you want. 
it's the opportunity that God gives us as, as believers to, to recalibrate. To look back at what saved us to begin with and be reminded of that. And, and correct if we need to. So this is a perfect opportunity to, to do that. Father, I thank you for the righteousness of Jesus. Father, I confess I am unrighteous. There is no good in me other than you. I confess publicly what I have already stated before a much more important place, before your throne, that I am a sinner. And I am so thankful that Jesus came to save sinners like me. And I am thankful for what this table represents. And I pray that you would keep me and everyone else here that is a believer from being overwhelmed by temptation, that our lives would, would match our Savior, that we would grow in perseverance and seeking you and, and your kingdom. And that when we don't, we would fly quickly to Christ, our advocate, who is at the right hand, and um, restore our fellowship. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.